0: is the anniversary of 9-11, 2001, 15 years on, and probably most of you who were uh, alive then know where, exactly where you were when you first heard the news that some planes had flown into the World Trade Center towers there in New York, and then later a plane crashed in Pennsylvania as well, and it was a, one of those shocker moments of a generation, as some people would put it, and I do remember that morning, uh, although it was afternoon where we were, we were in the country of Ukraine, and I was in the middle of a language lesson learning Russian. And I was there, and a friend called on the phone, and he said, You need to turn on the, the news. Something bad has happened in New York. And I said, Well, I only have the Russian television. He said, It's on the Russian television. <laughs> I turned on, and they had just hacked right into the CNN feed, and they were, they were broadcasting CNN on the Russian television. And I remember seeing those images shortly after the first plane had hit uh, one of the the, the towers there and then in horror we watched with so many millions of others around the world as uh, we realized that our country was under attack and things had changed that day. Changed and a lot has changed in 15 years. We are now on a different footing than we were prior to that. But I don't know where you were and I don't know what you remember of those days. Maybe some of you too young to remember those days as well but I will say that it certainly, uh, when this date comes up every year, I I think about some of those stories that came out of 9-11 in that. Early that morning, out of Newark, New Jersey, there was a flight, United Flight 93, and on that morning, 33 passengers and 7 crew boarded that flight. They were headed to San Francisco. There were also 4 hijackers that boarded as well, for a total of 44 people on board. About well, 46 minutes into the flight, the hijackers took over the airline or the aircraft and over Ohio and turned it back east. And it was headed to most likely Washington, D.C. to do damage there somewhere. Maybe the White House, the Capitol, or the Pentagon. Already one plane had gone into the Pentagon. Shortly after they took control of the aircraft or during that, the two pilots were killed And the hijacker said, we have a bomb, and all of you need to go, all the passengers and the remaining crew need to go to the back of the aircraft. And so they complied with that, and they went to the back of the aircraft. And one of those passengers was a man named Todd Beamer. Many know Todd Beamer as far as his name, at least. He was one of those that uh, his name is synonymous, really, with the 9-11 events. Todd was 32 years old. He was on that morning, had got on his commuter flight, getting ready to go back home. To California. And he was one of those very frightened and concerned passengers and realized that his aircraft had been taken over. And word began to come in through, well, some of the passengers had made cell phone calls and had received texts, and some of them had been able to make calls out. And they realized that other planes had been hijacked also, and some of them had been crashed into buildings. So now they became really concerned. Todd went to the rear of the aircraft there and he picked up one of the Sky phones off the seat back and he tried to make a phone call and he ended up getting uh, Verizon's customer service in, I think, Cincinnati, Ohio and there he was put through to a supervisor named Lisa Jefferson and he began to tell Lisa there that uh, the plane had been hijacked and that they were, uh, had turned and they were now going in a different direction than they had been going and she assured him that she would stay on the phone with him through this at this point, he was getting really concerned. For a moment, he, he had a little panic in his voice because the plane dipped and it turned again. And he hollered out, Lisa, when that happened. The funny thing is, Lisa Jefferson, on the other end of the phone, had not told him his her first name. Uh, you see, Todd Beamer's wife, her name was also Lisa. And he was concerned for his wife. He thought, for sure, we're going down right now. And he hollered out, Lisa. And that actually surprised the Lisa Jefferson on the other end of the phone because she said I'd never told this guy my first name she said I'm still here I'm still here well she who was a Christian and Todd Beamer also a Christian they prayed together over the phone he led the group of scared passengers that were around him in the Lord's Prayer during that time as well and they recited the 23rd Psalm together over the phone while this plane was speeding at about 500 miles an hour towards Washington D.C. At that point, as Lisa Jefferson put it, she began to hear discussions because the passengers realized their only hope here was to take over the flight and take control of the flight back from the hijackers. And so they were discussing that. Todd told her, we've come up with a plan. We're going to take over the aircraft again and we're going to give that a try. And and, uh, they took a vote real quick and the group that was present there and they agreed that they would do that. And then, of course... The famous words that came out of 9-11 was from Todd, and his last words that were recorded or that were heard there by anybody on the ground was this, Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. And that was it. The phone line remained open until that plane, just a few minutes later, would crash into the ground in a field just outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killing all on board. And probably sparing many lives that were saved in the process because that plane was headed to another target somewhere. No doubt, all heroes, not having woken up that morning on 9 11 2001 wanting to be heroes, but realized that they were thrown into the midst of something. And I want to talk about that this morning because, uh, and I'm going to talk about final words. Because those final words of, let's roll those actually were a rallying cry in the days and months and years after. They're actually military units that took that on as their slogan when they went and began the invasion in Iraq and other places in Afghanistan, and they wrote that right on their vehicles, they put it on their bombs, and a lot of things like that. It rallied people to a cause. And I think of that because Todd Beamer... Probably didn't realize what he was saying would do that, but his last words were important. They were words that were brought more, probably brought us to a kind of a sobriety because, because of the events that, that surrounded them, right? And it, it caused everybody to pause there and to think about that. Well, I want to use that just to, by way of an opening today to talk about important final words. Important final words. You see, there was another moment in history where the Lord got a hold of people's attention. It occurred some almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection, ascended up into heaven. And he took his rightful place. He was getting ready to depart. And we come to Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, and we're in that last section. We're down to probably just two messages left, including today's. Out of this uh, study in the Gospel of Mark, which now has gone on for a couple of years, and uh, I've enjoyed it myself. I, I hope you have too, and that we've gone through and looked at some of the amazing things that occurred in the three-year ministry that Jesus had on earth. And during that time, the miracles and the, the, the message that he had as well, and the display of his power, and the very fact that he was the servant savior. He came to serve. He came to save And that he was on mission. He was on mission right from the very beginning. And when we began this series, we looked at the opening of the Gospel of Mark. And we looked at the opening of the ministry of Christ on earth, which was his baptism, right? Where he uh, publicly declares himself and is declared to be Messiah or the Christ. And he begins that three-year ministry at the end of that time he would be cut off right he would be crucified they're cruelly treated crucified and in horror thousands and thousands of people would watch and to this day people look back and we see in our mind's eye at least the events of the crucifixion as one of those pivotal times in all of human history it really is the climactic event of human history and of course he was buried and then on the third day rose again And he came back and for 40 days he was with his disciples and he taught them. He gave them instruction and we don't know everything that he told them during that 40 days. We do know that they went from being this scared group of of men that were hiding behind closed doors and locked up and worried for their own life to men that were emboldened who would go out and they would be on mission. They would take the task that Christ gave them and they would carry it on and they would continue that on. And I would say this, that we are privy to at least the important words, the final words of Christ. In all the gospel accounts, we have Jesus instructing his disciples, his followers to go out and to bring the gospel to others. And in Mark's gospel, in chapter 15 to 18, we have those final parting words as recorded by Mark. Let's read that. It says, And he said to them, Our God, again, as we open up your scripture this morning, we first of all want to thank you for these words as recorded by Mark here in the gospel account. Thank you for the great commission, the command to go and to bring the gospel, to preach the gospel, to make other disciples. Thank you, Lord, that you did not just want that done in one location in Jerusalem, but throughout the whole world. Thank you that for the centuries that have uh, are in between here and then, Lord, that you have sent out. Many, many missionaries, disciples, followers of Christ who would go out and they would share the gospel and bring it to a dark world. Lord, we live in a world that is still very dark. This sin has touched it greatly and there's much evil. And Lord, we always would pray you deliver us from evil. But yet, Lord, we know that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil. For you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Thank you that you're such a shepherd. Thank you, Lord, when you parted and you went up into heaven. You did not leave us alone, but you sent the blessed Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to come and to reside with us. And Lord, we would pray today that we would follow your leading. Thank you that you are still leading. and You are still in control of all things. And Lord, as we open the scriptures today, help us to to look at these final words you had for your disciples and place them in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. we we'll look at these important final words. Important final words. And there are basically three requirements that are, or three things that I want to look at this morning about uh, Jesus' final words. And the first one is very simple. It's, there was a requirement for disciples. A requirement for disciples. And I'm getting my notes out here so I stay on task this morning. You have here uh, Jesus saying in verse 15, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I like that verse. Uh, that's one of those verses that you can't really escape in Scripture, can you? When the Lord says to them, "Go into all the world," you can underline that word "all" and preach the gospel to every creature. I think every creature doesn't necessarily mean you have to preach to the mosquitoes and the black flies and you know the groundhogs and all that. But uh, but the Bible does say preach the gospel. I think. Uh, I have spent many uh, a meeting outside in uh, camp ministries and other things preaching the gospel. And lots of mosquitoes have been present and they've heard my preaching too. Some of them didn't survive and some of them did. But I think of those things that God says go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And there's a number of things here about this task that is uh, set before us. There's a requirement. You see when Christ was there and he's talking to his followers, his disciples... I think he didn't just include them, but all followers. Because he tells them to go out and to, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 20, teach all nations or make disciples, literally is the way it says, it, it is written. Uh, they were to go and make other disciples. And those other disciples were to continue that task. And they were going to go into all the world. All the world. Not just the parts that are convenient. Not just the places that people are generally peaceful. But all the world. Even to your enemies, even to those, the Lord Jesus said that. I want to break this verse apart for a moment here and look at it a bit because the requirement is is a twofold uh, requirement. First one is go. Although the emphasis in the Greek text is not on the go, sometimes we like to emphasize the going. Right? There's a lot of going, but there's not always a lot of the second part, which is the preaching. Okay. The emphatic verb that's found in this in the Greek is actually to preach or to teach and then other great good uh, the great commission um, passages also emphasize the making of disciples as the emphasis of the of the uh, thrust of the verse but I want to look at these two things the first one is to go going is just that it means to go from one place to another and that's never easy is it none of us like to probably uh travel all the time i mean there are those of you that probably like to travel occasionally but if you were always going and you never had a place to call home here or a place to come back and put your head it would be difficult wouldn't it do you know that it's still difficult for disciples to go and to tell other people because sometimes it involves going to places that it isn't as convenient as here Sometimes it means going to a place that might be better than here. Who knows? But it is the process of going. And in the process of that going, it's present tense, that they are to make other disciples. They're to proclaim, to herald the gospel. That's what the word preach means. When Jesus says, go into all the world, I think that's important. By the way, that task in the last 2,000 years has not been accomplished. And even if it had been, in the first century, been accomplished... I can just let you in on a little clue. None of those people of the first century are around anymore. They're all gone. That means a new generation has arisen. And by the way, statistically, on Earth, uh, the average life expectancy is about 70, give or take. Now, for Americans and Canadians, we, uh, we live a little longer, statistically. You might not make it, you might. In other places of the world, they live a little less, okay, um, but you know what about age 70 is the average life expectancy of the world that means that in 70 years my world does a complete turnover with its population of people and actually our population is growing you know we're, we're now at over 7 billion people on the face of the globe in all these different countries of the world all these different languages and I, you say well what's the status of the going today well there's still people going Christians are going and they are telling people the good news They're telling people the gospel. They're doing that. But also, I know this, in mission circles and in mission societies and, and boards today, they are saying one of the greatest challenges they face is something called attrition. There are many missionaries today that are aging. They're getting to the years of where they can no longer continue in the thrust of ministry they've been involved in for just the sake of aging and the physical strength they have left others have died and gone on and others have retired and come home and those things and there are not the generation or is not the generation to follow like there was in times past. You know what that tells me? It tells me that uh, the the church here in the West and, and I'm saying in the West because that's where for the last couple 300 years almost 400 years there's been a thrust of missionaries coming out and they've been going into the world. Today there are more missionaries coming out of Asia in South America and in Africa, uh, coming out of those regions, uh, at least in percentage or per capita, than there are in the West here, in I'm talking about the United States and Canada or in Europe. And I think of that because I think we're seeing a change in our world, a good change maybe. Uh, I know a guy who is in Brazil and his mission organization, he's a Brazilian And they are sending missionaries not only throughout Brazil and thousands of little villages throughout the Amazon Basin, but they're sending missionaries to Portuguese-speaking Africa and Portugal itself and places like that, and they're bringing the gospel. But that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about going. It's about bringing the gospel. And by the way, it's about going for all disciples, not just disciples in Madawaska, Maine, not just disciples in Brazil, not just disciples in China, not just disciples, you put the, you know, you put the word there, or the country there. But for all disciples to be involved in that process of going. I won't belabor that, but that's a given here when Jesus says this. These are important words, right? This is Jesus' let's roll, all right? And he says, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Well, I can tell you this, that we can do a lot of things that are good in the world. We can travel all over the world and do a lot of going but the most important thing you can bring with you is the gospel. It is the preeminent message. It is the message of the good news of salvation. That's what the gospel is. A lot of people don't know that. They, they use the word sometimes like saying, oh, that's the gospel truth. And they would use that just to describe truth. Like it's really accurate. But they don't even really know what the gospel is. You ask some people, you say, what's the gospel? And they say, oh, the gospel is to love your neighbor. Well, that's not the gospel. That is the fruit of the gospel. All right? But it's not the gospel. The gospel centers on a person. The gospel centers on Jesus Christ. And specifically it centers on a message about Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Corinthians. I think we looked at this verse. Or these two verses a couple weeks ago. But you have here Paul writing. And he he delivers a very specific description of what the gospel message is. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Well, who did he receive it from? He received it from the Lord himself, all right? And he says this, that Christ died for our sins. That's number one. I have it highlighted there. Christ died for our sins. Can you say that with me? Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. Say that with me. He was buried, all right? And that he rose again ready he rose again the third day according to the scriptures at the heart of those verses right there is the gospel message and it's about christ it's about who he is but it's about his what he did first and foremost he died for our sins according to the scriptures died for our sins I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. I know I every week I, I try to bring in the gospel. I do. I really do in my morning messages. I always try to, to t- tell you the very simple gospel. But I'll I'll tell you in the process of that uh, familiarity can breed contempt. Almost right. You can almost say ah well that's he says that all the time. Stop for a moment and think about that. That God to fix the sin issue that we had the problem the answer to evil the answer to everything that has gone on wrong in my world he sent himself. God the Son, he put on flesh. He walked and he grew up, he walked on this earth. He breathed the air that we breathe. He got tired, he got hungry, he had to rest, all those different things, right? The Bible says that in every way he was tempted like we are and yet without sin. He was the only one that's ever walked this earth without sin. The only one. Because of that, he qualifies to be the Savior of mankind. He qualifies to be our sin bearer, because he who is perfect, the Bible says, was made sin for us. That we who were at enmity with God, we were the enemies of God, we can be made right and brought into the family of God, right? And then get his righteousness on our account. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the book of Romans. Read through the book of Romans if you want to know more about that for sure. Christ died. He didn't die just like uh, uh, for a cause, Some people say he was a good man. He went out, he gave his life for something he believed in. That's commendable. Well, we could say that. We could say that. Do you know the 9-11 hijackers? They died for a cause too. They died for something they believed in. I would say this. They did not... They died in vain. (laughs) They died believing a lie. And I will say this. The difference is immense when you come to the death of Christ and the death of someone who just dies for a cause. And there are people who die for good causes, too. Don't get me wrong. And they should be honored. And there were many people that died on 9-11, 2001, who went into those burning buildings, and they laid down their lives, and they did so knowing they probably were in great danger when they even entered those doors. Think of one of the firefighters. I think he made it to the 55th floor, having climbed, I think, over 30 floors of the building in heavy turnout gear with his scba equipment you know all that stuff is you know lots of weight on you know, over 50 pounds by the time you're done climbing all those stairs and he was able to get up to i think floor 55 was the last radio message they ever got from him and he did so most of it on his feet not with a use of a lift or anything having to do that and he was headed above trying to get up to the fire and that's all they know where they don't know fully how far further he got along from there because the building collapsed and and the, he was uh, he was killed and he was just one of many, many, many. We should honor those kind of people like on a day like today and say thank you that you ran towards danger when everybody else was trying to run away. But he didn't just. Christ didn't just die for a cause. He died for sins. He died for, if you want to say a cause, the greatest cause, the greatest need that any of us have. Our greatest need is not You know, education, God would have sent an educator if that was the case. I'm glad for educators, okay? Some of you are them, something like that, right? You are. And that's great, but you know, we didn't need more education. He didn't send someone to give us more money in our bank account, you know? He would have sent an economist or someone, a businessman that would fix that, right? He didn't send somebody to give us more pleasure, or else he would have sent an entertainer. No, he sent his son. He sent God the son. And in doing so, we needed a Savior. That's our greatest need. That is our greatest need today. And he came and he died for our sins. And he didn't die as a last resort. Like, oh yeah, by the way, this is going bad for me. Now I'm going to go die for the sins of the people. He died according to the scriptures. You see, thousands of years before that. Right in the book of Moses, in in the book of Genesis, uh, written, written 1,500 years before the death of Christ, you have in the book of genesis the promise given there uh by the pen of moses right recording the events of creation and recording the fall of man into sin and there is the promise of genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that the seed of a woman would someday come and crush the serpent's head and they say that's the the first mention of the gospel by the word, by the name, by the way, excuse me. The word gospel means good news. I think most of you know that. It comes from an old English word, and it's really two different words: good, right, and spell. Spell is word, okay? Like spelling is the study of words. We still use that root. So they say good spell. That was like good word, and it became gospel, the good news the good news of salvation the good news that someone has paid the price for my sin and the bible says the wages of sin is death so the only price worthy of sin's payment is death but just not the death of anybody it had to be the death of god himself the death of god the son because he is the one Who paid the price for our sins. And it was according to the scriptures. Throughout the Bible. That was uh, prophesied of. You come to places like Isaiah 53. And it right there in Isaiah 53. Prophesies that the Messiah would come. And he would be like a lamb. Led to the slaughter. He would die in our place. And by his stripes we would be healed. All of that in the book of Isaiah. Very much says that. Or Psalm 22. Written a thousand years before Christ. And there David prophesies and he talks about the crucifixion. He talks about salvation. Psalm 22 reads like the gospel record, the gospel account in the New Testament. And yet it was a thousand years before. So that's why Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. Lest you think that he just appeared to die. And that is what is taught by many today. There are people today among, for instance, um, there, there are people today that uh, believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but he was just manifest to look like he died on the cross. Because after all, if he died, I mean, what would happen? I mean, God the Son dies. I mean, that that's really bad. It's shameful too. It's shameful because if you're shame, if you're up there on the cross, naked, dying, bleeding out, that's a shame. But you know what? God answered sin by becoming sin for us. All the sinful things, all the shame things, all of that. You know what? He died for them. <laughs> Died for all that. What a difference. What a difference. He was buried. And the, you know, he, by being buried, that puts to rest the idea that Jesus just was appearing on the cross. He actually was buried. He was actually put into a tomb. You don't take somebody who's been crucified, and if you want to make them better, if you think that he might have any chance of being alive still, by the way, he wasn't. The gospel record is very clear that he died. And even... Men like Luke. Luke was a medical doctor and the gospel according to Luke is very specific on Jesus. And when he breathes his last, one of the things that's recorded there is that the soldier goes up, pierces the side. I don't know about you, but getting pierced in the side um, and they would do so to pierce the heart. Uh, that That would be a killer right there. You don't survive getting your heart pierced, okay? And the Bible even describes it that water and blood flowed out. Very, very specific, because as soon as the blood stops flowing in your body, it begins to separate, it, you know, the plasma part, the liquid part, that becomes, you know, it separates from the rest of your blood, and if you, blood doesn't flow very long, and, and, and you know what, around the, the, the sac, around the, the heart, uh, the pericardium, that fills up with fluid, And towards death, it does that as well. And all that was happening on the cross. And when that soldier pierced into the heart of Jesus and water and blood flowed out, it was an indication that he had been dead. And his blood had already separated. Very clear. Very, very clear. And you find they buried him. And there in the tomb, for parts of three days, there he was, right? On that Sunday morning, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and the resurrection was also uh, prophesied and there are all kinds of verses that deal with the resurrection of christ psalm 2 being one uh, on that that's the gospel in a nutshell okay and you say maybe preached by a nut but you know what it is it is the gospel message it's that simple well There are important final words. And number one, there was this requirement for disciples. But there was also a responsibility for the hearers. There's a requirement for disciples that there's a responsibility. Do you know that when you hear the gospel, you are actually responsible for it? You're responsible for how you receive it. You're responsible for what you do with it if you receive it. But there's a response that's necessary. When the gospel message goes out and you say to someone and you come to them and you say, do you know that you have a problem just like I have a problem? We're born in this human race and we're sinners. And our sin condemns us. Our sin says that we're going to die someday. Our sin condemns us in the very fruit of our sin too, doesn't it? We can make a big mess of our life because of sin. And that's the world we live in. And yet there's a way out there's a way you can escape that and the lifeline is found in jesus christ and his payment for our sins and when people hear that and you tell them you just need to trust in the lord jesus christ believe on him and you will be saved some will say yeah that sounds too easy some will say yeah you're crazy man i don't want to hear that others say i'm happy with my sin you know i really enjoy what i do it's for a season. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. There will be a season that it ends. And, you know, there's all those excuses. And some would be like, you know, Felix, I'll call for you when I have a convenient time, right? Uh, that's, that happens. People say, well, I'm going to put it off. But there's a responsibility to act upon it. There's a responsibility to come to faith in Christ, to st- to, to address that in, in that the Bible answers it here in Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, verse 16. He says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And I want to focus on that first part of that here. He who believes, all right? He who believes. The answer to the hearer or to anybody who wants salvation is very simple. It's to believe. Okay now, Mark, it adds here, and is baptized." now this, if you only had the gospel of Mark, you might come out of this and say, "Well, it means I also have to go and, and be baptized somehow uh, and do that. What Mark is talking about here is the evidence, outward evidence of salvation that's what baptism by immersion pictures. but baptism by immersion is not necessary for salvation, all right, and I 'll build on that a little bit here in a moment, but Uh, that's important because elsewhere in scripture is not connected with salvation, okay? And there's actually uh, plenty of scripture that that talks about that. It also could be a direct reference to what we call spirit baptism. You know, at the moment when you trust Jesus Christ and by faith, that's what you do when you believe, you're saying, I believe on you, Lord, and I'm going to trust you for my sin and uh, that you'll forgive me of my sin. You'll make me a new creation. All of those things you get. But one of the things that you get at the moment of salvation in this age is is this. You get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to seal you onto the day of redemption. That's what the Bible teaches. That also is likened, and the book of Corinthians talks about that, as being baptized into one body. And it's the identification doctrine is what it is. And that's what the word baptism means, to be identified with or to be baptized into And there are several instances of that in the scriptures. Um, And when we publicly go through the waters of baptism, we're identifying with Jesus Christ publicly. But it should have already been accomplished in our hearts, in our lives, when we believed on the Lord Jesus. We were actually baptized into the body of Christ already. Just so you know that. There's a distinction. So exactly what Mark has in mind here, uh, I can't say for sure other than this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say he who will not believe and be baptized will be condemned. You see, the emphasis is still on belief. Very clear. And I think that's important because you come to the scriptures and uh, over and over again, uh, it's taught again about the the Holy Spirit and uh, baptism by him. For instance, in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, is the account of the Gentiles. We'll come back to this verse a little later. But you have uh, in Caesarea Philippi there, where Peter is preaching. And it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, he's speaking the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, th- those are the Jews, who were belie- who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also, and for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And verse 47 says this, And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then they asked him to stay a few days. Now, the order of events here is faith That's belief. And in doing so, they received the Holy Spirit. And there was evidence of that. And then they were baptized in the water as an outward declaration. That's a very clear example from scripture of baptism. You also have that preceding that with the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip goes there and joins himself next to this guy who's reading from the book of Isaiah. He's actually reading Isaiah 53. And he says to Philip... What is the prophet talking about? Who is he talking about? And Philip begins there with Isaiah 53, preaches the gospel to him. And the eunuch says, what hinders me to be baptized? And Philip says, if you believe, you may. You believe, you may. Belief comes and then baptism. Belief, baptism. Belief, baptism. But there's evidence in scripture that baptism in itself, the water baptism I'm talking about, does not save. Uh, Jesus did not teach salvation was necessary by baptism. Nowhere you'll find Jesus doing that. You'll not find it in the account when the, in Luke's gospel uh, where the thief on the cross is there. And he says, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That man could not join a church. That man could not be baptized. That man could not give money. That man could do nothing to earn his salvation. He was a thief dying on a cross the only thing you could do is look to, to Jesus by faith and said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And that's how he was saved. It's that simple. Later, Peter would say that. Uh, in the book of um, 1 of Corinthians, where Paul writes in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Even Paul, in his ministry, he did not emphasize water baptism, although it is important. But his emphasis was to preach the gospel, and he allowed others to come behind him and to walk through with his followers, the followers of Christ, and to be baptized, identifying with Christ. And I'll go on to say this, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. See, the Corinthians had a problem. Some were following Paul, some were of Apollos, and then there was the super spiritual crowd that said, I'm of Jesus, I follow no man. And they were doing it not out of Uh, following those men, they were were simply doing it out of contempt for one another, in little cliques. I'm of this person, I'm of that person, I'm of this. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you, because you guys would say, I baptized you in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. So it wasn't even a huge thing with Paul in that way. But then he says this in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The necessity of salvation is focused on the gospel. And it's specifically focused on the preaching or heralding of the gospel, which is centered on the cross of Christ. The very action that Christ did to accomplish our death. Or accomplish in our salvation through his death. And I think of that because sometimes we go back to the gospel of Mark, and people pull that one verse out, and they say you have to be baptized and they teach a false doctrine called baptismal regeneration that if you are baptized or someone sprinkles water on you or sit, prays a prayer over you that you become a christian and the church erred greatly in history when it began doing that it would walk into a region and say all right all of you be baptized and they would go in and get all wet and then they would say you're christians now you know what None of them, not all of them, but many of them would never have understood even the gospel or heard the gospel. They didn't believe. They hadn't trusted the Lord. All they had done is go down into the water somewhere as sinners and they came out from, went from dry sinners to wet sinners. That's it. That's all. And there's lots of that that goes on. And when I was born, and shortly after I was born, my parents took me and a man threw water on me and he called me a saint. And I I wasn't a saint, all right? And I'm not... That is a doctrine called the baptismal regeneration. And it says that you're born a Christian. Or you can be made a Christian. You don't find that from scripture. This pattern of scripture is faith, belief, right? And then baptism. And one picturing uh, the Holy Spirit's identifying baptism that's already taken place. And that has to be at a time when you can reason to do that, all right? Uh, I don't think infants should be baptized... Uh, because they can't believe they don't understand they don't trust the lord yet what age should they be baptized well at an age of understanding which is appropriate whatever age that is that if they come to faith in christ but that's important okay and i didn't mean to maybe belabor this too long on this but it's important that we understand that the emphasis was not on baptism but there is a responsibility to the hearer when the gospel comes to you you have a choice when it's presented and you understand, you can say, Yes, I will accept that, or you could say no. The no is, is has terrible consequences because Mark warns us, he that believes not is condemned. Condemned, you say, Well, what does that mean? Condemned, the Bible clear is clear on it. You're condemned to death and not only physical death, but eternal spiritual death, which is a separation from God. And it's not just an annihilation. Some people teach that. It's a separation for eternity and a place called hell. And a place that the Bible describes is a place of torment, a place of darkness, a place of fire. And I don't know, you think of fire and light most of the time, not in hell. It's an eternally dark place separated from God, separated from everything that's good. Think of the scariest situation you've ever been in and just multiply that. A thousandfold, and you might have just a glimpse of what hell would be like, and it would be eternally in torment as well. We know that from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and there is a man who is his dialogue from hell is recorded, and he's in flame and he's in torment, and he's begging that someone tells his family the gospel. If somebody today could come back from hell, the first words that they would say was tell somebody about the gospel tell them that there's a way out of this awful place that man in luke 16 could not be delivered from hell because he had made up his decision in this life but you know what there are people that are alive today and there's some maybe sitting right here in this room today and you need to decide to follow christ if you won't you're condemned i didn't make that up that's what jesus said that's what his final words were for his disciples. Well, not only is there a requirement for the disciples, there's a responsibility of the hearers, but there's also a recognition of his messengers. He, there's a special promise that's found here in Mark 16, and I think uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. I know we're almost out of time, but I want to look at this because there are also signs that would follow there would be a change and there would be a confirming aspect to the ministry that these guys had. Verse 17 of Mark 16 it says and these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons they will speak with new tongues they will take up serpents and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover and I want to say right up front on this in the When Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking to this group of disciples who were going out into a world that did not yet have the Bible. They did not have a written form of the New Testament yet. That was all going to come in the years to follow. And one of the things that, and I'm coupling this with 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians talks about uh, prophecies. It talks about speaking in tongues. And by the way, the Bible always presents people speaking in tongues that were known languages. They were not heavenly languages, okay? So you're clear on that. All the way from the first mention of uh, Genesis chapter 11, when tongues comes onto the scene, it was a sign of judgment, and it was a sign that the languages were confounded, and people went out, right? Genesis 11. You come to Acts chapter 2, first evidence of tongues being spoken, and you have Jews from all over the known world, and you know what? There was a speaking and a hearing miracle that took place that day, a confirmation that God was doing something. But they were in known tongues. People said, We hear them speak in our own dialect. It was not, you know, some language that nobody knows. There had to be some interpretation of it. And later, Paul would talk about that and clarify some of that because the early church was practicing those things and thought that it made you maybe more spiritual to do this than do that. And, and he turns it around and he says, Wait a minute, it has to be done right. The other thing that Paul teaches in verse 8, uh, eight to 11 of. 1 Corinthians 13, in that wonderful chapter on love, he says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And he refers to tongues as a time that they will cease. Now, there's much argument among Christians today of when those things will cease, and, and were they only for the first century, or were they continuing on until this present day, or will they start up again, all that uh, whether there is knowledge it will vanish away for we know in part and we prophesy in part he says but when that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away and a lot hinges on that verse 10 of first corinthians 13 because the argument today among people who are what we call cessationists believing that certain sign gifts would cease or cease shortly after the apostolic age that first century Uh, would go back to this verse and say what is the that okay because we don't know it says but when that which is perfect is come then that which is in part will be done away and it seems to be directly connected with the preceding verses that tongues would cease and new revelation would come to cease as well and that's where the jury is out on this and all that the tense or the gender of the, the the that that is used it's it's inanimate and it's Most likely, if it was referring to the church, as in the church is matured, um, it would be in feminine gender. If it was in reference to uh, the coming of Christ, some argue that, and that when Jesus comes again, this will cease. Uh, It would be in masculine gender, but it's in a neutral gender, and it most likely, and it makes sense to me, refers to the completion of the word of God. When the word of God was done, the book of Revelation was penned, shortly thereafter... It would be expected there was no more need for new revelation, nor would there be any need to confirm the book by the miracle of being able to speak in other tongues and doing that. It's still, uh, I'm not going to argue with people that have experiences and things like that, because you can't argue with somebody that has an experience, and I'm not trying to, to, to make light of that or anything like that, but I would say this, that has to be really closely examined. The other thing in this, tongues, both in the book of Corinthians was Paul writes to the church at Corinth, the only church he writes to in the New Testament, addressing the issue of tongues, and it was because they were not practicing it correctly. It was a problem, and he calls them immature. And furthermore, every time tongues was spoken, there's three evidences of it in the New Testament, where tongues was, was a miracle of tongues happens, Jews were always present. You have them at Acts chapter 2, and then in Acts 10, and later at Corinth, and uh, throughout that. And you know what you have is, again, tongues was a sign of judgment against the Jew, unbelieving Jews. And it was a sign that the word of God was now going to Gentiles. And if you go to the book of Romans, it says, Paul says in Romans, that's to provoke them to jealousy. So that they would believe. You imagine being a Jew... In Acts chapter 2, there that day, they're all Jews. 3,000 of them get saved. And all of a sudden, they hear people speaking in a language, and they, in languages that they're not accustomed to, they've never learned, and they actually hear them. And they also hear it in their own language, okay? They hear it in a language, and not only just their own language, their own dialect. They would hear, if it was English, they would, and there wasn't anybody from that part of the world, but English, <laughs> uh, Uh, they would have heard it in you know the drawl or the the dialect of of their region whatever they would have heard that like that think of it that specifically that's a miracle and that's a confirmation of the messengers because when they went out these disciples they went out and somebody says well how do i know you're really from god here's a miracle and god would do that and it obviously was something they were accustomed to in the early days But I just want to throw that out, and it's for later discussion or whatever. But I will say this, the emphasis in the Bible is not to seek those things, but rather to preach the gospel, okay? And today that is the most important thing we can be doing and exercising, and to pray to God. And I'm thankful that the Lord makes intercession for us in groanings that cannot be uttered. (laughs) So if you even think that you need to speak tongues in a a prayer life to be spiritual, the Bible says we don't even need to do that. I'm so thankful for that. I'm just, I throw that out by way of of instruction today. And God is the one who's powerfully in control of these things. And we go back to our text here. But when... um, uh, Paul writes there, and by the way, when in the emphasis, I didn't read this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. The context of what he's writing about was done not in maturity, but uh, in, in immaturity. All right, just so you understand that. He has to address it because it was not being done appropriately. And uh, that's why uh, the emphasis should not be on that. When we go back to our account and... Paul writes, or excuse me, Jesus speaks, and he says, these signs will be follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. That happened, didn't it? In the book of Acts, by the way, you can find the instances of these things. Um, that's exactly what took place. I think of Acts chapter 16, the demon-possessed slave girl, and there's the apostle Paul, and uh, these, the, this demon has to flee from her in that. There are other accounts Uh, they will speak in new tongues. And again, that's also found three times in the book of Acts and and later on. They will take up serpents. Paul did that. Remember the viper that bit him (laughs) and all that. And then one that is not mentioned in scripture, but by tradition is recorded. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. There was a seal upon these followers and uh, these disciples as confirmation signs that they were messengers of God. And even uh, those things that, were put before them that were deadly poisons and others and there is some evidence in tradition i don't put a lot of credibility on all the tradition things that some of the early disciples were uh, attempts were made on their life with poison and they did not die from that they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover and we see that right away in the book of acts with with peter for instance right and the man that is lame and then again uh, all this is part of, of that. The recognition of his messengers. And I think, my friends, I'm running out of time here, but tremendously important to understand that when Christ gives this message, the emphasis was on proclaiming the gospel. The emphasis was on the message of the gospel, to go out and to herald that and to do that. And he would confirm it. And I don't want to lessen the importance of those that last part of those verses. Do you realize that there's power in the gospel. And the inherent power that is found in the changed lives of those who've been infected by the gospel, those who have received the Holy Spirit. And I know that because I'm looking out at a room of people who many of you have had these changed lives. The gospel came to you. You believed. You trusted the Lord. In doing so, he radically changed you. He set a whole new course of direction. Just like way back there when we began this message this morning... And I think of that, those final words from Todd Beamer when he said, let's roll. It set the course of a nation and really a course of a world in many ways over the next, well, now 15 years since those days of that. When Jesus gave these words, he was setting a course for his disciples to follow. And he was patterning them after his own self. And I'm thankful that all these, uh, again, the Lord is, is powerful. I don't want to put him in a box, by the way. I believe that he is the one uh, and it is the most important thing we have today i uh, i know that anyways we better close off and uh, important final words the requirement the responsibility the recognition of his messengers father i thank you this morning again for these parting words these final words of christ from the gospel of mark thank you for the hope and promise that are found in those And Lord, I pray that as we even go out from here today, we'd be mindful of this command. We'd be mindful also that if we are yours, we've believed on you, you've forgiven us our sin, you've made us a new creation. We thank you, God, that we have a message that the whole world needs to hear, a message that is the most important message. And thank you for the great promise that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. It's that simple. And thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who continues to confirm his message and his messengers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed this morning. With.